listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Welcome to the Long-Term Care Pharmacy Podcast, where you're going to have more fun than staring at the sun. All right, well, welcome everyone to the LTC Pharmacy Podcast. We're excited because we're live. Tamara and I are sitting across from each other. Laura and I are sitting across from each other. And we are here at ASCP Annual Meeting, the place to be if you're a consultant pharmacist or a clinical pharmacist. Check it out. Uh, this is a great meeting in Orlando and Kissimmee. How do you say that? I don't know. Kissimmee? Is it Kissimmee or Kissimmee? I feel like it's Kissimmee, but I'm not certain. Kissimmee, finally. <laughs> That's what we're going with. But we're here, and it's been a great meeting so far. Anything you guys want to bring up? Any any high topics? Any good points about the meeting so far? Well, so this morning was the opening general session with Dr. Drew. I don't know if you guys grew up watching, uh, what was it, Loveline on MTV? Yeah. Yeah, so Dr. Drew was in the house this morning, and he had the best talk. He was talking about healthcare and how healthcare contributed to the opioid epidemic. And he went on to talk about in the 80s when Purdue came out with OxyContin, all of a sudden pain was the fifth vital sign and families started um, suing physicians over their family members being untreated for their pain and having pain. And so kind of scared physicians into prescribing opioids. And a letter was written in 1980 in the Journal of Medicine saying that um, we conclude that despite widespread use of narcotic drugs in hospitals, the development of addiction is uh, rare in medical patients with no history of addiction. So all those things kind of spurred physicians onto prescribing opioids and led to the epidemic. Awesome. <laughs> yeah. See, Laura, Laura and I, we, we wanted to attend the Dr. Drew session, <laughs> and we just didn't either want to make it, but we're glad that Tamara shared. So good, that. you guys. It was so good. Yeah, this is a fun place, great talks, and we're, you might be keying in that we're talking about pain, uh, this podcast and opioid stewardship with us. You've heard her a little bit, but is Dr. Laura Meyer Junko? It's Hunko. 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 Wow, messed that one up. <laughs> Back at butchered it. So, but your students, I hear, call you Dr. MJ. Yes, that way they don't call me Dr. Junko. Yeah, <laughs> like Scott like just me. did. <laughs> well, you're yours is a little nicer. Junko is Jun- a little Junko is junk pretty, in the trunk. I mean, was... <laughs> <laughs> junk in the trunk. Okay, yeah, but I didn't say Junko. Junko, and it was still wrong. <laughs> Dr. MJ is here, and. Let me tell all of our listeners a little bit about you. You are the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Pain and Palliative Pharmacotherapy. That is a mouthful, but that is awesome. You're a clinical pharmacist, you're a professor, and you shared that you're a yoga instructor (laughs) as well as a foodie. Anything else you want to tell all of our listeners um, I'm a recent fellow of ASCP last year, so I've been with this organization for a while, and so I'm happy to be here. I did attend the pain neuroscience workshop yesterday with Adrian Lau, and that was amazing. Nice. So good things happening here. Glad to be here. Awesome. Awesome. So we're going to kick this thing off here. And we're obviously talking about pain in the elderly population, which is a very hard, hard thing to control. And we were kind of talking beforehand 
And you mentioned something about biopsychosocial approach to chronic pain management in the elderly population. So tell us a little bit more about that, Dr. NJ. So the biopsychosocial approach has been around for a while, but I think it's gaining traction among, you know, um, patients or people in the pain world. Um, but it may have not be common knowledge to pharmacists. I think as pharmacists, we're very much focused on pharmacotherapy, where the biopsychosocial model takes a different approach, where you're looking at not only use of pharmacotherapy, but also addressing other components of pain, going beyond the physiology of the, of the patient and the anatomy and the pain generators, and looking at psychosocial components that also contribute to pain. So I work in palliative care and hospice, and a concept we have is called total pain. So physical pain just makes up a small portion of the pain experience. And there is psychological pain, existential pain. So what is the meaning of pain? What's their purpose in life? And how is their life been altered because of pain, as well as spiritual pain? And so the biopsychosocial model recognizes that pain is a multidimensional experience that goes beyond the physical dimension. It's much more than a tissue issue, especially in chronic pain. And then we have to address psychosocial concerns. And that's something that's very important older adults because we know there's a lot of psychosocial stressors. There is, you know, their loss of function and their loss of independence over time. And that can cause a lot of stress, a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety and social isolation, and then ultimately worsens their total pain experience. So we have to think about how to harness the power of pharmacotherapy in a safe and effective way, but also how to use non-pharmacological strategies. As a pharmacist, I'm really hooked on the biopsychosocial approach because I'm a non-prescriber, mm -hmm. right? And so what can I do beyond just recommending drug therapy in vulnerable patients who may be more likely to experience adverse effects. I, as a non-prescriber, can also be an educator. And so engaging patients in an understanding of all of the components that go into pain and helping them kind of achieve their best life with pain, recognizing how pain is processed in the brain and that their emotions and thoughts contribute to their pain experience and how they can have some control over their their pain and their function and and ultimately their lives. So that was kind of a, a mouthful there and I could probably go on and on and on, but um, it's, I think a very important thing for pharmacists to, to get behind is understanding the biopsychosocial model and pain neuroscience education, which was the emphasis of the workshop yesterday. So I'm glad that it was here at a pharmacist conference and yeah. I'm pregnant, but that is the reason why I came. <laughs> It's for that workshop. So that's awesome. When you think about those kind of approaches in a long-term care setting, can you just give us a, one example of how we might be able to help our patients in long-term care control their pain via like thoughts or music or like what's one way we could implement that into a long-term care facility? Right. So it can be a little bit challenging if you have patients that maybe have some cognitive impairment because the educational piece may be difficult. But engaging patients in integrative therapies that can basically calm the nervous system. So we learned that in chronic pain, it, it becomes less of a tissue issue and more of sometimes an oversensitized, revved up nervous system. So you can engage patients in the long-term care setting in integrative therapies like aromatherapy you know, and, you know, lavender, et cetera, can be very calming. And that ultimately can be a distractive technique for the patient, but also 
maybe address the other components of the biopsychosocial model. Or, you know, learning what the patient likes to do in terms of like maybe they enjoy some sort of activity and that's a distraction activity that um, maybe provides them a, not only a distraction, but a, a positive pleasurable activity that they can enjoy that actually helps the pain experience. So one thing you can think about is that we have the descending pain modulation pathway that goes down from our brains to our spinal cord to reduce the pain signals that are making their way from the injured tissue to our brains. And pain is not pain until the brain says it is. So if we can augment the descending pain pathway, which uses chemicals like endogenous opioids, serotonin, norepinephrine, we can impact our own pain experience. So doing things that are pleasurable, mm -hmm. you know, if they enjoy food, they want ice cream, engaging them in that activities increases kind of the, um, the drug cabinet in our brain and the happy chemicals in our brain, which amplify our brain's descending pain pathway to reduce the pain that we feel. So, I mean, it's a little bit, it feels like sometimes a little bit of a stretch, but um, really engaging patients in these non-pharmacological approaches can have a significant impact and it's it's safe. Yeah. So even if it doesn't work, at least it's a safe intervention versus pharmacotherapy, particularly, you know, stronger opioids. I mean, who doesn't like ice cream, right? Right. I mean, that's, that's something that's pleasurable. I think what's so fascinating about this, and we could probably talk for hours just about the psychosocial components, but you look at CMS, and CMS has brought a lot of psychosocial wording and language into the regulations. And so I think this fits really nicely in this like overall approach to trying to address ways to help somebody with their pain, but not necessarily always medicate that person, mm -hmm. which I think is so incredible. So thank you for sharing and that's awesome yeah and so let's now talk <laughs> let's get some ice cream and come back <laughs> um, let's talk a little bit about medication and uh, pharmacological approaches i know like some of my nursing home patients and the cdc came out and said i believe it was this year that although opioids treat pain they also increase your sensitivity to pain and you see that because they might start on you know 10 milligrams of morphine and pretty soon it's 15 and then it's 20 and they still have the same rating of their pain it's still a seven out of ten so maybe you could speak to medications a little bit. Yeah. So I think sometimes, you know, I work in with the cancer pain world and palliative and hospice. And so I have to sometimes be careful when I suggest the biopsychosocial model and the non-pharmacological model, uh, because that often cannot be done on its own. You know, you have to understand that patients do have legitimate chronic pain. There is a physical component. And so pharmacotherapy should still be involved much of the time. Um, so you think about in older adults, how can we utilize drug therapies that are safer? You know, so if we're trying to get away from opioid therapies, then we go and look at the non-opioid therapies, but those can be problematic too. We're talking about NSAIDs, it can exacerbate their chronic conditions, like their heart failure, you know, it can interact with anticoagulants, et cetera. So that may not be the place to go. Um, I have a talk tomorrow, not to put a plug for myself, but on topical analgesics and transdermal analgesics. So kind of trying to leverage the topical analgesics, particularly topical NSAIDs in chronic pain, like chronic osteoarthritis pain of the knee or uh, for acute pain can be a very helpful analgesic therapy that spares these systemic toxicities that you worry about. 
Um, and then for other patients where maybe using a localized therapy is, is not going to be the treatment, then maybe we could try something like transdermal buprenorphine, which I am a huge component of. Um, and to your point about you know, the risk of opioids and the development of hyperalgesia and the development of tolerance, buprenorphine is a unique opioid therapy in terms of its pharmacology. So it is a partial mu agonist, which to some people that sounds like a less effective opioid, which is not true. It can have, you know, a similar efficacy to your full mu agonist. But the benefit here being a partial mu agonist is it has a ceiling effect on respiratory depression, which is, which is wonderful, particularly at higher doses of buprenorphine. But why buprenorphine transdermal is wonderful for the older adults is because it's associated with less cognitive impairment, less constipation, which could be owing to due to its transdermal formulation. But also its pharmacokinetics are well-preserved in the older adult, and you don't have to adjust for age-related changes like decreased renal function because part of it is going to be excreted in the feces, the metabolites only partially active or inactive, so you don't worry about accumulation. So I've had, you know, it takes a while to get people on board with the idea of using buprenorphine for pain because of its association with opioid use disorder. But guidelines for and consensus documents for the pain in older adults since like 2008 have been advocating for the use of, of buprenorphine. It's a schedule three um, opioid analgesic, so it allows you know, refills, it has less risk of dependent, dependency and risk of substance use disorder. But I am still having some difficulty getting providers on board with it. But when I do, and we get it um, started in an older adult, you know, we had a hospice patient that was getting morphine and, and Norco. And even though the doses were conservative, the patient was developing agitation and hallucinations, probably due to maybe the dose being too high or active metabolites. We switched the patient over to a buprenorphine patch. The behaviors decreased. We got her off of the antipsychotics, and she did wonderfully. So when you have a good experience like that, then the hospice nurses know, and then they're asking for this transdermal buprenorphine in another patient, and then it kind of cascades from there. Um, so yeah, big component of, of, of buprenorphine, particularly transdermal patches, because it avoids the oral route is once weekly patch. In an older adult, it's a, a fabulous formulation. That's funny you say that, because Dr. Drew said the exact same thing this morning. About buprenorphine? Yep, he's All a right. fan. Yep, he echoed exactly what you just said. Good. Mm -hmm. We see at Gobs or Norco, I mean, just tons of it, all the constipation, like you mentioned, all the negative effects, the agitation with it, which, you know, oftentimes we don't think about from a pain perspective, but absolutely, you know, if you're in pain, you're going to be agitated. We're all short temper, you know, when we're not uh -huh. feeling good uh -huh. and we're hurting. And so I think that's incredible. We just need to get everybody on board. Right, exactly. <laughs> like, how do we do this? Let's do Education. this. Right from the pharmacy podcast that we're doing right here. That's how they're all doing. So. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about non-pharmacological therapy for a second. And what are some options there for older adults? So if you have an older adult that is, you know, cognitively intact, pain self-management is a wonderful non-pharmacological strategy to employ. And again, kind of like the transdermal buprenorphine, there's not a lot of 
awareness about it. And there may not be a lot of access to it. The National Pain Strategy has been advocating for pain self-management programs since the release of that document. And if you look at all current contemporary national and international guidelines for musculoskeletal pain, non-pharmacological strategies that they recommend first line are pain self-management programs. So where do these even exist? That's the problem. So I did develop a, or brought a workshop to my area in Northern Illinois, but it took me a while to get there. It was developed at Stanford University. I had to undergo training and then brought it to my area. But I still think whether you have a formalized workshop like this, you can still take the principles of pain self-management and educate older adults in the clinic setting, in the pharmacy setting, potentially in the long-term care setting if they're cognitively intact, but also educating their caregivers on this um, information is important too. So pain self-management basically engages patients in cognitive behavioral therapies, restructuring their relationship with their pain, and recognizing um, the brain-pain connection that the, the, there are three things that go into the pain experience, the physical sensations, from the body and the thoughts and the emotions that are stored in the brain. And so you may not have a lot of control over the physical sensations, but you do have an impact on your, your, your thoughts and emotions. And if you're having a very bad day and you're very stressful, think about what happens when you leave your phone at home. That causes a stressful day unnecessarily. So if you're having a very stressful day, you may notice that your pain is worse. Those physical sensations are ramped up because of the information that is stored in the brain, um, which ramps up this danger signal and the, and the physical sensations are, are, are amplified. So recognizing that there are inputs in the brain or information stored in the brain, like thoughts, emotions, learned responses, fear, fear of movement that patients can work on to restructure their relationship with their pain can have a world of difference. But it really, the cornerstone is they have to have understanding of how pain is processed and the relationship between the brain and pain. So it can be a complex idea, but I think it is very helpful to start introducing some of these educational pieces and give patients a sense of control over over their pain, the things that they can control, which is their thoughts, emotions, and engaging in positive affirmations and doing pleasurable things and kind of calming that danger alarm in the brain to reduce the amount of physical sensations um, that they feel in terms of pain. And then I think to your point, you mentioned, you know, if someone, you do all these things with the opioids and they still are rating their pain, you know, eight out of 10. And so I think assessment is a very important piece too. And we really are getting away from using the zero to 10 pain score because you can escalate opioid therapy. You can throw the kitchen sink at them in terms of pharmacotherapy. And they may always say their pain is a nine out of 10 because what is not addressing is the other psychosocial complaints that go into the pain experience. So really the most objective assessment of pain is looking at a patient's function. Right. So and identifying with the patient what it is that they want to do to to improve their quality of life and then looking at whether use of analgesic therapy, use of these non-pharmacological therapies, move them closer to achieving those functional goals. And that is more important than the, the subjective zero to 10 pain score because they have high levels of anxiety. They may always say their pain is nine out of 10. And then you're ramping up the opioid unnecessarily. 
But then you see them, they're going for a walk, you know, they're engaging in their social aspects of their life, their function is improving. So we are moving in the right direction. So I think that's important to look at too, is how we actually are assessing pain and getting away from things that may drive escalation of opioid therapy, drive the opioid epidemic, like the pain score. Yeah, that's a great point. Oh, we see the numeric pain scale pretty much 90% of the facilities we service. And I don't remember this, and maybe you know, but there's like, what, 15 different pain scales? There's a ton of different pain scales that they have as other options mm -hmm. to assess pain, to see kind of where that person is at. And I love that idea of moving in that direction that the goals that they want to have then we're, we're doing something right. Like we're making progress in the right direction. So that's huge. And I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't see that as often that that level of thought is going into the pain management in our population. I think more or less, it's just, they put a fight, I'm giving them this drug. And wouldn't that be incredible if we saw more of? Oh that? yeah, that would be way better. <laughs> I'm thinking of just some of my patients that I know you know, that will always rate their pain a seven or eight out of 10. And then we keep throwing more and more opioids at them and they're, they still do the same activities. They still rate it. It doesn't matter. So maybe she's rating it eight out of 10, but she's like walking down the hallway and participating. And so do we really need to ramp up that dose or is she looking pretty good? So I think that's such mm -hmm. a good point. So when we talk about that, people rating their pain, what is like our treatment goal or what's a good goal to have when treating patients with pain? Well, I think it's important to engage the patient in what their goals are. So, I mean, that can be difficult potentially if you have a cognitive impaired patient, but you need to ask them, what is, what is it that they want to do? If their pain were under better control, what would they like to be able to do? And some will say, you know, they like to be able to, to socialize, or they'd like to be able to, you know, um, you know, maybe get on the their bicycle machine at their at their home. Um, and so kind of working towards those goals. So it really shouldn't be our goals or the health system's goals or this arbitrary number on a pain scale. It should be their goals. And I think that's actually really important because not only is it an, an important assessment parameter, it also, you know, um, helps the patient understand that they can still do things in their life despite pain. And we can help them get their lives back by utilizing some non-pharmacological strategies like cognitive behavioral therapy, by using pharmacotherapies like maybe, you know, the topical NSAIDs or Cymbalta or something like that that's well tolerated, helping them recognize that they have a purpose still and helping them find their purpose. And their purpose may be different than what it was when they were younger, didn't experience that much pain. And so helping them find their purpose in life and engaging in what still makes them happy reduces some of that existential suffering, which goes into the total pain experience. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that's that's huge. And with someone that's maybe cognitively impaired in, in the, you know, the nursing home setting, it may be difficult. And we may have to think about not just physical functioning and improving their physical functioning, because maybe they aren't going to be able to engage in physical activities, but looking at their social functioning, maybe their spiritual functioning or psychological functioning, those are important goals too. 
Yeah. If we wanted to bring these ideas to our facilities and do like either nurses education or patient education, where can we get some resources to help kind of relay this information to our facilities? Um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of national guidance out there. There's a national pain strategy. There is the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services in 2019 that have their guideline out there. So carrying the weight of having these guidelines that carry quite a bit of weight can reinforce some of these ideas. But also, you know, there is plenty of websites out there. There's the pain toolkit. There's retrainpain.org, which kind of give this you know, background information on the brain pain connection and the importance of pain education and the importance of function and kind of giving staff some resources to kind of hang their hat on. I think it probably would be helpful maybe to do in-services and that type of thing. And I think pharmacists can own this. I agree. This is an educational, this is lifestyle intervention. This is in our wheelhouse, Mm -hmm. essentially. As you were talking, I'm thinking to myself, like, this is a perfect role for a pharmacist, not only as educators, but on a care plan, right? The plan of care for that person. Having this worked out where you're including a lot of these factors that aren't normally included on there. Most care plans I've seen for pain say decrease pain, right? Mm-hmm. It has nothing else that is overall function or any of the other goals for maybe cognitive impairment. And I think like bringing this information to these homes and saying, this is what our goal is, working with the physicians, working with a nurse practitioner, saying, I, we, we need to do better on this. This isn't just about controlling a number. This is about coming up with a plan mm-hmm. for this that's individualized mm-hmm. for that person, which is going to take time, right? Like mm-hmm. that's going to be hard for every single person because we, I mean, granted, they're frail and elderly. There's a lot of people that are in pain, but we can make a huge difference mm-hmm. I think, as pharmacists. Oh, yeah. Way. And also, uh, the providers are so busy in the nursing homes and managing so many different patients. I think they would appreciate the help. Um, But one other question I wanted to ask, when you're going to switch someone to the transdermal buprenorphine, is there a resource to calculate like how you would go about doing that? Or, you know, if they're on this drug this many times a day, how do you go about converting them? So that's actually a great question because uh, conversion factors to buprenorphine are lacking and lacking because of its complex um, pharmacology. So it may be difficult to convert from, you know, oral morphine equivalents to a buprenorphine patch. So what you'd have to do is follow the manufacturer's guidance, but also recognize that the manufacturer's guidance is very conservative. Um, So you may have to individualize it for your patient. But what the nice thing is about the buprenorphine patch is that it can be used in opioid-naive patients, which is much different than a transdermal patch where they have to be opioid tolerant. They need to be taking at least 60 milligrams of oral morphine or the equivalent per day for a week to be on a transdermal fentanyl patch. Buprenorphine, if they have no exposure to opioid therapy and we know an NSAID is not the right drug for them and we know the gabapentin is not going to work for them because they don't have neuropathic pain, et cetera, you can start buprenorphine patch at five micrograms per hour. It's a weekly patch in an opioid-naive patient. Now, the, the downside with the transdermal buprenorphine is that we are limited in the patch strengths that we have in the United States. So in the United States, they only go up to 20 micrograms per hour, which is fairly conservative. So if someone was going to require, like if they have cancer pain and require 80 milligrams or more of oral morphine equivalents per day, 
the buprenorphine patch that we have in the United States is not going to work for them. Mm -hmm. In Europe and other countries, it can go up to like 140 micrograms per hour. We don't have that because of the FDA concern about QTC prolongation, which is a little bit unfounded with the, the, the low strengths that we have. Mm -hmm. So that the signal for QTC prolongation was with 40 micrograms per hour and above. So it is a little bit challenging to switch because of the high affinity of buprenorphine for the mu receptor. In theory, it could induce some withdrawal if you have somebody that's on high dose opioid and then you switch, you know, start and stop over to a transdermal buprenorphine patch. But I think the beauty of the patch is it is for somebody that has low opioid requirements, like an elderly person that we don't want to, you know, have them on a potent opioid or in an opioid naive patient that doesn't have the oral route available to them. And we can't do a transdermal fentanyl because they're opioid naive. So I think it really is for people that have, you know, probably chronic non-cancer pain, maybe in theory cancer pain that have low opioid requirements. And that's a lot of your elderly patients. Mm -hmm. So it I, really is. I think it's a great it's a great uh, formulation that we have had available to us since like 2010 in the US. But so why aren't we using it? Well yeah because I even think when I PGX test my nursing home patients, so many of them are 2D6 poor metabolizers. So the tramadol and the hydrocodone aren't even working for them. Mm -hmm. And you don't really want to jump to morphine. So that's a great alternative too mm -hmm. for those patients. Mm -hmm. But this is making me want to start an opioid stewardship program in my nursing home. Right. Like we already do the psychotropic programs where we try to get people off their psych meds. But how great would it be to meet monthly and just go through a few people and mm -hmm. just address it like you know, all the aspects of pain, the meds, but also what you talked about, the non-farm approaches, mm -hmm. what makes them happy? Is it the ice cream? Is it lavender oil? What would it be? Mm -hmm. And so I, I'm motivated to do that. I mean, just think of the better quality of life that a lot of these residents could, could have. I mean, right now, I think many of them, because we don't really manage the pain well, are either over-medicated or you know, under-medicated or, you know, somewhere in between. And I just think to myself, again, I'm ready to go launch an opioid screen program. <laughs> yep. So awesome. this has been awesome. Amazing. And like face-to-face, because -face, we have, so we don't typically, I mean, you guys can't see us, but we're face-to-face. <laughs> first ever. Yeah, first ever. And Laura, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you for being on here. And I look forward to coming to your talk. All right, me too. And awesome. with that, we're going to sign off. Thanks, guys. Thanks. Thank you.